The time is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Wednesday, September 20th, 2023. I'm your host, Vicki Iden. In tonight's news, the political fight over child care continues. Experts predict that young voters will have a big impact on U.S. politics. The Madison Police Department is being sued over accusations of open records violations. And we'll go back in time to 1968. This is Vicki Iden and Faye Parks with your local news coming to you from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. GOP legislators gaveled in and gaveled out of a special session today that had been convened by Governor Tony Evers that prevented discussion of several proposals for aid for child care centers, paid family leave, and increased assistance to UW. The proposals were designed to address the state's workforce shortage. Many child care centers are on the precipice of disappearing uh, federal assistance, meaning either closures or substantial fee increases. The Child Care Counts program, a pandemic-era program that helps child care providers, is set to end at the start of next year. According to a report from the Century Foundation, 2,110 child care programs are projected to close without those funds. That's estimated to result in over 87,000 children without child care in Wisconsin and the loss of over 4,880 child care jobs. Meanwhile, the governor visited a child care center in Fitchburg today. We'll have more details on that visit in a few minutes. And GOP legislators have introduced legislation to sharply reduce the use of John Doe investigations, a process similar to the use of grand juries. The Journal Sentinel reports that the proposal would bar an investigation if a person has a claim of self-defense. If a district attorney declines to prosecute after self-defense claim is made, then a judge would be barred from initiating an investigation. John Doe investigations were recently initiated into Wauwatosa following the fatal shooting of Jay Anderson while sitting in his car and of Tony Robinson in Madison. Both cases were dismissed by the judge. John Doe investigations were conducted about various activities of the Walker administration. In the corruption cases, a number of his aides were convicted. In the second case, which involved election fraud, lower courts found a basis to prosecute, but was later dismissed by the Supreme Court. Despite the fact that a law requiring voters to show identification already exists, two Republican legislators are calling for a constitutional amendment to, quote, enshrine, unquote, the requirement. Wisconsin has required an ID for voting for over 10 years. There are no reports of its misuse or avoidance, nor has there been a substantial effort to overturn the ID requirement. The two legislators, Representative Snyder of Schofield and Senator Wangard of Racine, argue that this requirement will add to a sense of legitimacy of an election. Also yesterday, another constitutional amendment was reintroduced that would limit the right to vote to U.S. citizens age 18 and over. This is, of course, federal law. The authors of the amendment contend that some local governments might allow non-citizens to vote, which again would raise doubts about the legitimacy of an election. This measure will likely be on the ballot for the 2024 presidential election. 
In a forum hosted by the Cap Times, UW-Madison Chancellor Jennifer Mnookin says that the campus must balance its legal obligations while also giving underrepresented students a sense of belonging. Using as an example the incident last spring when a student posted racist comments on their Facebook page, Mnookin said that those two goals clash when someone uses hateful rhetoric. Practicing free speech also means teaching students how to engage in civil discourse, the chancellor said, adding, quote, I don't think that our students arrive having had a lot of practice, unquote. The chancellor said, quote, there are a lot of people who are big defenders of free speech when it comes to their ability to speak their truth. But when they hear things they find deeply troubling, offensive, wrongful, even hateful, their reaction is to think that it needs to be silenced, not just condemned, but canceled, unquote. This afternoon, WRT attended an unrelated press conference where Governor Tony Evers was questioned about Assembly Speaker Voss's stance on DEI. Governor Evers said, quote, he's got to be in his bonnet around the issue. If you look at any major industry in the state of Wisconsin, even smaller industries in the state of Wisconsin, they care about diversity, equity, and inclusiveness, unquote. Assembly Speaker Voss introduced a proposal to fund over $720 million for renovations of Brewer Baseball Stadium. The deal calls for a total of $614 million in public funds and $100 million from the owner of the Brewers. The state share would consist of a payment of $61 million next year and then $20 million a year for the next 20 years. The Legislative Fiscal Bureau estimates that the team operations provide about $18 million per year in sales and income taxes. The proposal also requires the city and county of Milwaukee to each kick in $2 million each year. However, the online site Urban Milwaukee reports that the city is still required to pay over a million dollars each year for payment for the existing stadium and will continue to do so until 2029. The city asked the Brewers to allow other buildings to be constructed on the site to provide property tax income. The Brewer owners refused to do so. Voss noted that if the city or county refused to pay its share, the funds would be deducted from their shared revenue payment. The State Journal reported that Madison City Council will continue to hold its meetings as late as they like after the council rejected an ordinance to end its meetings after midnight. By a one-vote majority and after a 40-minute debate, the council killed the measure to end meetings by midnight. Meetings have often run until the early morning hours. Proponents of the cutoff time note as a practical matter, residents cannot participate in city council meetings as they run for hours. Mayor Rhodes-Conway noted, quote, You could refocus your agenda on policy issues that actually matter to this community, which frankly is not what you spend most of your time talking about, unquote. At the same meeting, the council discussed new rules for pigs in residential areas for 30, mi- for 30 minutes and a permit for a dog kennel for an hour and a half. After decades of debate, planning, and delays, Highway M running along the north side of Lake Mendota through the town of Westport will soon be under construction for expansion from two to four lanes. The $20 million project will provide less congested service to the 20,000 cars per day that use the route. It is expected that in another 20 years, that will be up to 27,000 cars per day. Some of the most significant changes will be the new intersections that will allow safer turns without the problem of backing up traffic. The road is notorious for long waits due to congestion. 
The project is expected to be completed by November of 2024, with work continuing through the winter. And now on to today's top stories. Governor Evers and the Republican-held legislature are locked in a back and forth over childcare in Wisconsin. The legislature rejected his proposal to extend a subsidy program instituted during the pandemic, while the governor plans to veto a package of bills that passed in the assembly last week. Earlier today, Governor Evers held a press conference at Fitchburg Child Care Center to spotlight the issue. WRT News producer Faye Parks has the story. Wisconsin lawmakers are searching for ways to address the state's child care needs, but Republicans and Democrats can't agree on what should be done. As legislative Republicans refused to take up the governor's proposals to better fund child care in Wisconsin today, Governor Tony Evers invited reporters to Mariposa Learning Center, a bilingual child care facility in Fitchburg. Mariposa offers a Spanish instruction 4K program and serves around 121 kids. But they have roughly 200 names on their wait list, which Governor Evers says is the statewide issue. The numbers of people on a waiting list is huge. And if we care about our economy and our workforce, we have to, we have to invest. That comes as Child Care Counts, a pandemic-era child care subsidy program, is set to expire at the start of next year. The program distributed $600 million to providers across the state, helping to cover rent, mortgage payments, utilities, cleaning, and other costs. The governor also proposed permanent funding of the program in his budget proposal this year, to the tune of $340 million. Republicans rejected that part of the budget proposal, even with a projected record surplus in the coffers. According to a report from the Century Foundation, a progressive, nonpartisan think tank, that could come with dire consequences for families, providers, and employees. Without continuation of the program, an estimated over 2,000 child care providers would close, leaving 87,000 children without care and 4,880 child care employees out of a job. Before this summer's vote, Governor Evers encouraged parents and child care workers across the state to contact the representatives and request that the program continue. However, he says that, looking back, voter feedback was not enough to turn the tide in the Republican-led legislature. I think, I think lots of... Lots of people that work in uh, child care across the state of Wisconsin did reach out, and they, and the people, and the Republicans in particular said, stick it. Meanwhile, the state assembly passed a package of bills last week looking to address looming child care challenges. The package includes everything from a loan program for providers to a lowered minimum wage in the field to increased class sizes. The governor has already stated his intention to veto most of these bills, saying... I think most of it is frankly ridiculous. Uh, he also says, On the Republican side, they think they know better than the people that are working in these, in these organizations. I think that's pretty rude, and frankly, I think it's pretty anti-democratic. As for whether he'd be interested in meeting with Republican leaders in the future to collaborate on the issue of child care, he says, <laughs> Take away some of the protections that, people, that kids have. You know, let's, let's uh, have 20, 20 babies in a room with, what, two, two people taking care of them? What mother would do that? What father would do that? Governor Evers also called a special session to discuss Wisconsin's workforce challenges. Child care was one topic spotlighted. However, no state Republicans responded to the governor's survey on the list of topics. And lawmakers gaveled in and out of the session today, refusing to engage in the conversation completely. 
Moving forward, the state Senate is set to consider the Assembly's bill package later in the fall. Governor Evers said that, even with the loss of child care counts, his administration will search for funding to keep the child care industry running smoothly. So we're going to do whatever we can. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. The time is now 6.18 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Last week, Planned Parenthood Wisconsin brought abortion services back to the state. A July ruling from a Dane County judge made that possible. Now, state Republicans are discussing ways to hinder abortion care once again. This afternoon, Senator Kelda Royce of Madison spoke with WORT news producer Faye Parks to discuss the shifting landscape of abortion in Wisconsin and what lies ahead. Thank you for joining me, Senator Royce. Great to be with you. In 2021 and 2022, you collaborated on the Abortion Rights Preservation Act, which ultimately did not pass. Why is it so important for abortion to be accessible in Wisconsin? Well, we know that women are in the best position to determine when and whether to bring a child into the world. And we also know that pregnancy can be extremely dangerous. And so there should never be political interference in these most personal and private decisions. Abortion is, of course, necessary for people who are not ready to parent or not able to bring a child into the world for whatever reason. But abortion care is also really necessary to help complete miscarriages that might be incomplete that could otherwise cause sepsis and death. Abortion is also important for women who develop very significant pregnancy complications. The U.S. has some of the worst maternal and infant mortality rates in the developed world, and that is in part because we don't have very good prenatal care here compared to peer countries, and that's in large part because we don't have universal health care. So when somebody develops a pregnancy complication, they need to be able to terminate the pregnancy, and that's true if a fetus has an anomaly, so that they don't have to endure further pregnancy with, with either a doomed fetus or at great risk to their own health and life. So you've touched on it already, but I'd like to know more about the consequences that come from abortion care not being accessible. Well, we know that when abortion is unavailable, women die. And we also know that when women seek an abortion and they're not able to get one, that it changes the whole course of their lives. We know this from the Turnaway study that compares women who are able to receive abortions to those who tried to seek abortion but were turned away. And we saw that everything that women feared about what would happen if they were not able to get an abortion came true. They were much more likely to be homeless. They were more likely to be in an abusive relationship or have their children exposed to child abuse. They were more likely to have been evicted, to live in poverty. And all of the ways in which having a child when you're not prepared to bring another child into the world can affect your life, we have seen that again and again over time. And the other piece is that most women who have abortions are already mothers. They know what it is to take care of a child, and they want to pour their energy and their resources into the child that they have. And it's especially sad because many of the women would at some point like to have another child, 
but they're unable to do so if they're forced into parenthood by being denied abortion, because those better circumstances that they're waiting for will never come. Since the 2022 Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe versus Wade, abortion services have been in flux. Now, Planned Parenthood has brought abortion care back to Wisconsin. Would you give the listeners a rundown on what has happened in recent months, just sort of a timeline on what, what's been going on? Sure. Well, Attorney General Josh Call filed a lawsuit almost immediately after Dobbs challenging the state's 1849 abortion ban, which had basically caused physicians to stop providing abortions in Wisconsin because they obviously did not want to be charged with a felony from a pre-Civil War era law. So that meant that people who needed abortion care had to go out of state to obtain it, or many people did what I have encouraged people to do, which is go online to order medication abortion that you can use in the privacy of your own home. And by the way, you can do that even if you're not pregnant. You can have medication abortion that you keep in your medicine cabinet just in case you might need it at some point, and you can order it from aidaccess.org. Recently, a Dane County judge determined that the 1849 language did not actually apply to abortion, but rather to feticide, so somebody attacking a person who's pregnant and causing the demise of their fetus, rather than a woman seeking an elective abortion. And because of that judicial ruling, Planned Parenthood felt comfortable providing care to women in state. So they are resuming abortion services, which is obviously great news, but it doesn't change the fact that at the end of the day, we can't be in a position to rely on judges or politicians or even the medical establishment to provide reproductive health care. And that's why I really encourage everyone to go to aidaccess.org, order a medication abortion, have it on hand, and educate yourself about it before you need it. It's safer than Tylenol, safer than Viagra, and, um, and it's something that, you know, something like one in four women will need in her lifetime. And so from your understanding, is there a strong demand for abortion services in the state? There is. And in fact, that's true nationwide. The one thing we know from decades of research, both here in the United States and around the country, is that banning abortion does not reduce abortions or address the need for abortion. If we want to reduce the need for abortion, we need to expand access to contraception and health care. We need to have increased economic supports for young parents. We need to make sure that young people have medically accurate sex education. That's how you reduce the need for abortion. Banning abortion just makes it more difficult, more dangerous, more expensive, and pushes abortion later into pregnancy. So state Republican lawmakers are already organizing to stop abortion care once again. Would this potentially ban abortion completely or make it less accessible for Wisconsinites? Wisconsin Republican politicians have unfortunately double down on their anti-abortion policies. They don't care that a majority of Wisconsinites want abortion to be safe and legal. They want to keep the 1849 ban in place. They have refused to repeal it session after session after session. And in fact, they are really unwilling to make any changes to it. They also want to institute gag orders that would prevent any public employee, including someone like me, who's a state legislator, from giving any accurate information about abortion. They want to take taxpayer funds and shovel them into anti-choice disinformation organizations, crisis pregnancy centers that lie to women and try to manipulate them. So there's a lot of bad things that Republican politicians have in mind for Wisconsin women, even aside from the abortion bans that they support. So where are they in the process of 
potentially passing that legislation. Do you anticipate them having the votes to pass it? Um, could this eventually end up in the state Supreme Court? Uh, well, there are many pieces of anti-choice legislation that are introduced in this session and in previous sessions. The good news is that Tony Evers will veto the anti-choice legislation that comes before him. So as long as we have a pro-choice Democratic governor like Governor Evers, we will be safe from the Republicans' plans. But should that change, I anticipate that we'll see a lot of anti-choice bills passing as happened under the Walker administration. And that will be bills to restrict access, not just to abortion, but to contraception, to fertility treatment services. We've seen bills introduced to ban stem cell research. There's a lot of a lot of bad things that Republican politicians would love to do. They just haven't been able to as long as we've had a Democratic governor. So a conversation that happens often in pro-choice circles is that when all-out abortion bans aren't feasible on the state level, what will happen is bills will go through that really impede the process. Can you tell me what some of those are? Um, is that something that could happen in the future? Absolutely. In fact, even before the Dobbs decision, abortion was incredibly difficult to access in Wisconsin. <clears throat> I think we ranked a D or an F in terms of the availability. One thing is just that there are not many places in the state where you can obtain an abortion. It's really Madison and Milwaukee. And then occasionally there's a Planned Parenthood in Sheboygan that occasionally provides abortion services. People who seek abortion care in Wisconsin need to endure a 24-hour waiting period, a physician-only requirement, which means that a nurse practitioner or other prescriber isn't allowed to even dispense medication abortion, medication which is basically safe enough that it should be over-the-counter, and in other states is easily provided by other medical professionals. There are biased counseling requirements that force doctors to give information to patients that is medically inaccurate. There are ultrasound requirements that just increase the cost and the burden on patients who need care. So there are all different ways that our regulations, even under Roe v. Wade, made abortion inaccessible to many Wisconsinites. And many of these things are still in place, is that correct? They are all still in place. They are all currently still in place. And so the providers who are resuming abortion services will continue to abide by those unless and until they are overturned by courts or repealed. So that brings me to my next question. What I'm wondering is, what are the next steps for the pro-choice community in Wisconsin? What are the long-term goals? Well, long-term, I think we want to ensure that abortion rights are protected in our Constitution and that they cannot be thrown away by Republican politicians who are impervious to what voters want. Very closely related to that is addressing gerrymandering, because the reason that the Republicans in the legislature are able to be so anti-choice and so much more anti-choice than the majority of voters is because they are protected in, from losing their seats by unfair rigged maps that basically guarantee Republicans control the legislature even when they don't receive a majority of the votes. In the long term, I think it's important that we normalize abortion care as simply part of provision of, of health care and that medication abortion should be easily available over the counter. We have a letter that we've written to the FDA, myself and many other legislators, urging them to make medication abortion over the counter, which would help alleviate a lot of the restrictions that make abortion so onerous for Wisconsinites. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Senator Royce. 
Yes, my pleasure. Great to talk with you. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Vicki Iden. Thanks for joining us tonight. Investigative journalist Bill Luters is perhaps the, the state's most ardent supporter of transparency in government. He also heads the Wisconsin Freedom of Information Council, an advocate for open records and government transparency. Earlier this month, leaders filed a lawsuit against the Madison Police Department, alleging that the MPD has routinely violated Wisconsin's sunshine laws in their delays in responding to records. Earlier this week, Buzz host Brian Standing spoke with leaders to find out why he decided to take the fight to the courts. Bill Leaders joins us now by phone. Welcome back to the 8 o'clock Buzz, Bill. Good to be here, Brian. So, I... Clarify something for us. There are some categories of uh, personnel records that are exempt from open records and some that are not. What what is it that you're looking for and and why is it subject to open records law? Well, all records are presumptively open and and subject to a balancing test. There are some personal records that that can be withheld if if the custodian decides that there's too much harm involved in, in, in releasing them compared to the presumed good of having public access. Um, but uh, there are also records that are just routinely provided as a matter of course, and then there are ones that um, that take longer because they involve more records. Um, and there's just become this category of records uh, involving officer discipline that has uh, accumulated a large backlog within the MPD of more than a year. And so when you ask for a record, like if there's a... Uh, Department in this case announced that there was an officer who was disciplined, received a one-day suspension for uh, unprofessional conduct, and I asked, well, what is that about? And I was told, well, we can provide the records, but it's going to take 14 months. And that's what started me on this journey of of pushing back against that long wait. I'm arguing that that is not in keeping with the statute. That's a violation of the law for them to take that long to provide such a record. What is the police department's response? Why do they say it's going to take uh, 14 months to produce a record about an action that's already occurred? Well, one thing is I think that they regard these records on a first-come, first-served basis. So if I ask for, as I did in in this case, for a record that ended up being 13 pages long, um, fairly simple request, probably took less than an hour to pull together and review, uh, it gets put into a queue of other requests, some of which are voluminous and take weeks to process. So the department is apparently under the impression or was under the impression that it could respond to requests uh, first come, first serve. There's nothing in the law that allows that. If a request only takes an hour to fulfill, it should be provided within, you know, a very short period of time, not, you know, more than a year. So are there legitimate reasons why a request could take 12 months to a year to produce? I don't think so. I think that uh, the department uh, does realize that it has a problem on its hand, that this backlog is, is a problem and it needs to address and it has taken steps toward addressing it. I don't doubt that. Um, but I was still told um, just a couple of months ago that 
a request that I made for some additional records was going to take an additional 11 or 12 months of waiting, which is just way too long. I mean, it's not in keeping with the statutory requirement uh, to provide a record that long after the fact. And this is something that we're seeing not just with the Madison Police Department, but with public records custodians all over. The excuse me, the Madison Metropolitan School District has been sued for uh, untimely um, responses to records requests. There was just a settlement in a, in a recent case where the district agreed to pay some $17,000, including a fair amount of punitive damages uh, for the long delays that it has in responding to records requests. Um, and, you know, across the board, I think a lot of custodians have come to believe that we're really busy with other things is an acceptable reason for not responding promptly to records requests. And it's not. So is there, is this just a, a case of sort of administrative ineptitude or you know, staff being overwhelmed or do you, is there potentially something more nefarious going on here? Is there a cover-up in the works? I don't think there, that there is. I, I don't see anything nefarious going on. I do think that they're short-staffed and that they have not um, allocated sufficient resources to this. Maybe this lawsuit is going to help in terms of uh, getting them the additional resources that they need to eliminate this backlog and respond to requests more promptly. My contention is that this area of records, records about discipline involving officers, uh, is, is especially important for the public to have access to, that you have to know just how good a job the department does in policing itself, that when there's a complaint against an officer, that when uh, there's discipline imposed against an officer, that things are investigated thoroughly and fairly, and that just conclusions are, are reached. And the only way that you can, the public can, can know that is to have access to the records. And so it's just very, very important that public access to these records be maintained and that they be provided promptly. So tell us uh, a little bit more about the lawsuit. Um, you filed it in Dane County Circuit Court. What's the process from here? Well, uh, there is a, uh, we did get a contact from the city attorney and there are some negotiations that I believe are going to occur. I don't know if that will head off court proceedings, but what would normally happen is that each side would brief the issue, would file briefs explaining uh, their position, and uh, you go back and forth a few rounds on that, and then a judge would review it and, and issue a ruling. There's not usually a trial that's associated with open records uh, litigation. It's just a, a series of briefs that get filed, arguments made, and the decision rendered, which can be appealed to an appellate court, which can be appealed to the state Supreme Court. So. Uh, it's a lengthy, uh, often protected. It's an often protected uh, legal process that that plays out. Might it take longer than the 14 months the uh, police department <laughs> is saying that they will produce the records? And what happens yeah, if they produce the records in the interim? It, it it could, and they probably will produce the records in the interim. I suspect that they're going to like try to speed up on this request and say, well, that's that's what we've done here. You you didn't like having to wait. Um, 14 months, so we're going to make it just four months or just five months. And I still think that's not acceptable. I think that the department should be looking at ways to produce a summary document at the time of a conclusion of an investigation that tells pretty much all that someone needs to know about what happened, what was alleged, what was investigated, what was found, uh, and to provide that promptly or to provide it automatically that every time that a uh, 
officer or police department employee has been disciplined for breaking the rules, that automatically there's release of some significant information, not just vague, bare-bones summary that you can't even tell what's going on, but a substantial uh, records release that makes clear what happened, what was looked into, what was found, and what was done. Now, uh, in your in your capacity as the president of the Wisconsin Freedom of Information Council, uh, I know you've been monitoring uh, some legislation around uh, around the country and in some places that try and and prevent lawsuits like yours uh, from taking place. Uh, what's the status of that uh, here in Wisconsin? Are, are, is the law still pretty solid, or are there movements afoot to sort of undermine? some of that oh yeah our laws are pretty good here Uh, the open records and the open meetings law are both uh, very good and they're vigorously defended Uh, and uh, I I think um, there are always initiatives that uh, that pop up and practices that occur that cut against the tradition of openness Um, one issue that some national organizations that uh, organizations like uh, Wisconsin Freedom of Information Council across the country are dealing with are um, what what are considered to be nuisance requests. Uh, some states have passed laws that say uh, you can't file more than one or two records requests a year, or uh, you can be penalized if you file uh, two big requests that are too big or too voluminous. That uh, they argue that they need relief from uh, frequent and abusive requesters, and that. Uh, laws either haven't changed or there's efforts being made to change the laws to make it harder for people, particularly some people, to get records. In Wisconsin, the only uh, group that's uh, treated differently under our our records law are incarcerated persons. About a decade or two ago, uh, the uh, state Supreme Court, in its wisdom, decided that, um, excuse me, it was the legislature that decided that inmates could not have access to records that didn't concern themselves. They could only make requests that were directly pertinent to their own situation. They could not make just blanket records requests like any other citizen could do. And so, you know, we've got that constraint in our law. So when we talk about sort of frivolous lawsuits, I mean, you did mention that, you know, some of what you're hearing from the uh, police department and here in Madison is, hey, we're overwhelmed with some of these, you know, some of these are incredibly voluminous, you know, we have to go through them, it takes a lot of time to do that. Is there any merit to that argument that some of these uh, freedom of information requests are in fact sort of frivolous and are just meant to sort of annoy or, or harass uh, administrative officials? And is there a way to distinguish a frivolous freedom of information uh, request versus a uh, legitimate one? Or is that is that a, an impossibility to determine what's I, that distinction? I don't think that's what's happening. Brian, I really don't. I, I did make a request for information about the department's backlog, and I received a 47-page report of requests and responses from the police department over the last year where people asked for a certain group of records, and then we're told, uh, okay, it's going to take 13 months. Okay, it's going to take 11 months. Um, and I didn't see any requests there that I thought were out of line. People who um, you know, are charged uh, with crimes sometimes will seek records involving the police officers who were involved in the process to look into their, their past records to see if there are uh, sustained complaints uh, against them. Uh, that, that's one thing that happens commonly. And then there's situations like I'm looking into where the department has actually come out and said, 
we have determined that an officer or a police department employee has done something wrong here and we've imposed discipline. Uh, and then the public, you know, has asked, well, wh what happened? You know, who did what? Uh, what did you look into? What did you find? One of the things I've already found um, from um, the request I made is that there is a very large volume of complaints against police officers that do not lead to discipline, that uh, the investigation does not conclude that uh, wrongdoing occurred. Um, it's just a, a matter of like, for the, the one quarter where I requested uh, a record of the only incident uh, in the entire quarter for the first quarter of 2023, an officer was, the, was disciplined. I've told that there were 70 separate, 70 other investigations that did not lead to discipline. So, I mean, that's a huge number of records. What exactly are people alleging that the department is looking into and finding that nothing wrong has happened? How much, based on that, how much can we trust the police department's internal investigation to come to the correct conclusion? See, I think the more access you have to the records, the more likely you are to trust the process. Mm -hmm. One record that I obtained, uh, that was a case where there was an officer who was disciplined, they took it really seriously. It was uh, someone sent a kind of a, uh, a wiseacre um, e email to command staff complaining about um, and the way that an accident he, he was involved in was handled. Uh, and it was really, you know, it crossed the line in terms of professionalism and they called him on it and they uh, uh, got him to admit that he was out of line and they imposed a one-day suspension and held in abeyance but you know it was a small infraction it was treated seriously everyone did their job everyone looked pretty good in the end once you saw the records that underlined the, the case so I, I do think that transparency often helps uh, build trust with the public because it shows that in most situations public officials are behaving appropriately. So given all that, then what's the answer to resolving these, these requests more quickly? Uh, do they just need to hire more staff to, to process these kinds of requests? It could be. That's one answer. And they have indeed added some uh, additional staff. I do think also that there's some merit to looking into providing uh, fuller summaries uh, of disciplinary cases at the time that they occur and just do it as a matter of course. Uh, where you don't necessarily release every single um, scrap of paper that happened, but you release somewhat more detailed information about uh, what was alleged and what was found. Uh, so there are solutions that could be arrived at. I offered to work with the police department to try to come up with um, solutions along these lines, and I indicated to the department that uh, if we couldn't arrive at some solutions, I was likely to, likely going to take this thing to court and. Uh, they did not respond with an offer to um, resolve the situation in a way that I felt was appropriate, and, and so the suit did happen. All right, we've been speaking. No I don't like suing the Madison Police Department. I don't like suing anybody. Um, and, you know, I'm a taxpayer, too. I, I don't want uh, my tax dollars to go to defend uh, government secrecy uh, on their end or to go for the legal costs that I incur um, for suing them, which has, happens if I substantially prevail, I'll get the money that I have to pay toward this lawsuit uh, back, and that's all coming from tax dollars. 
All right, we've been speaking with Bill Leaders, president of the Wisconsin Freedom of Information Council. You can read more about the suit, Bill Leaders versus Madison Police Department, including the full text of the complaint at wcca.wicourts.gov. Bill Leaders, thank you for joining us on the 8 o'clock bus. Thank you, Ryan. It's now 6.48 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to September 1968, when the city looked into the police response to fights between whites and blacks. The UW got a new chancellor, and women protested the military on campus and sought their own liberation. Stu Levitan has those headlines and more from 55 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, September 1968 As the Equal Opportunities Commission prepares for hearings into why the Madison Police Department arrested only young blacks and no whites after an evening of racially tinged fights during a teen dance at Bree Stevens Field in early August, Police Chief Wilbur Emery releases the results of his own investigation. It clears all officers of any wrongdoing. Emery also denies that any officer used his flashlight or baton, an assertion challenged by Central High School junior Callie Franklin, who testifies under oath she was hit by a flashlight as she was beating on a white girl inside a car. Emery goes on the offensive as the leadoff witness at the first hearing on September 17th. Relations between black youths and police have worsened since August 3rd, he says, quote, because of the blowing up of this incident. I think there's been more damage in the last six weeks, as far as black police relations are concerned, than in the past few years. Emery alludes to outside, quote, black agitators who have come here to cause trouble, but declines the EOC's request for more information. Merritt Norville, Community Service Director and highest-ranking black employee of the Madison Redevelopment Authority, disagrees. The tensions are the same, he tells the EOC two nights later. It's just that, quote, black people are now letting their feelings be known. The greatest problem in race relations, Norville said, is that, quote, the majority of our citizens do not believe that racial bigotry and discrimination exist in Madison. The University of Wisconsin opens a new academic year under its third chancellor in four years. H. Edwin Young, recommended by President Fred Harvey Harrington and unanimously confirmed by the regents to succeed William Sewell, 
who quit before he was fired after one troubled year. I was the wrong man for the times and the situation, Sewell later writes a friend. But Young's appointment, which Sewell had predicted months earlier, almost doesn't happen. Harrington's hand-picked search and selection committee inexplicably does not include Young among its candidates. Harrington has to call the members in and direct them to do so, which they do. Harrington believes Young will crack down on disruptive protests and will even use undercover agents. Young's first press conference proves him right. Demonstrations are appropriate behavior for students, he says, quote, but we won't tolerate disruption of this university. There are always people who would like to destroy the system, but I don't regard closing down the university as a legitimate demand. If one week in September is any indication, and it probably is, Young will have more than academic issues to address. The 1968-69 protest season starts on Saturday, September 14th, with the return of an issue from years ago, Reserve Officer Training Corps, ROTC. About 250 students meet on Library Mall and proclaim themselves the Freshman ROTC Resistance. They vote to boycott the mandatory ROTC orientation classes, which are still required to freshman males, even though ROTC itself was made voluntary in 1960, back when the new chancellor chaired the powerful university committee. At about the same time the students meet on the mall, a decorated 1967 UW graduate in the ROTC program, Army Lieutenant Harry B. Hamilton III, 24, dies aboard the hospital ship Repose in the South China Sea. A 1963 graduate of West High School, Hamilton had been injured during a firefight seven days prior. In his nine months in Vietnam, Hamilton had been awarded three Purple Hearts, a presidential citation, the Army Commendation Medal for Heroism, and numerous other commendations. Back on campus Monday morning, about 30 of the 300 students walk out of the first ROTC orientation. Another 16 do likewise at the noon session. That night, about 200 students engage in a prolonged disruptive discussions during the class sessions, which continue through the week. The voluntary ROTC program itself, in place since 1960, is already hurting. Combined enrollment for the Madison and Milwaukee campuses last fall fell to 1,257, its lowest level since 1962. And later this week, the Student Senate endorses making the orientation voluntary and schedules a referendum for October. On Wednesday, history professor Harvey Goldberg, the hero of radical students, becomes the first professor to have a class disrupted by the Radical History Students Association, as the HAS's Michael Rosen diverts Goldberg's lecture on European social history into a critique on the course itself. That night, a mass meeting of about 700 activists in 6210 Social Sciences approves the merger of the Madison Students for a Democratic Society and the Wisconsin Draft Resisters Union. The WDRU's John First, a former chairman of the SDS chapter at Columbia University, says the unified group will focus on organizational activity rather than the previous strategy of confrontation. Thursday night, B.B. King makes his college campus debut at the Union Theater. The Daily Cardinal reviewer enthuses that, quote, basically he educated a lot of honkies. A week later, 
Harry Belafonte captivates a crowd of 7,000 as he returns to the Fieldhouse, this time with the Dolores Hall gospel singers and singer-songwriter Jackie DeShannon. Saturday morning the 21st brings the first women-directed anti-war action as about 60 women and a handful of men rally at Lincoln Terrace. Naomi Puri urges a start of what she calls a, quote, women's liberation movement on campus to focus on issues beyond ROTC, including abortion, birth control, and job discrimination. Then they march on Ag Hall to invade a naval ROTC class. Using the microphone provided by Captain C.E. Olson, first-year student Lori Rosen, Michael's younger sister, reads a statement denouncing the military presence on campus and the war. When the class resumes, hissing, hollering, foot-stomping, and clapping begins. Olson twice warns that, quote, further disruptions will not be tolerated, but takes no action to expel the protesters. While the ROTC action is underway, other students are heckling U.S. Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall because he refuses to denounce or even discuss, quote, the immorality of the war during a well-attended Union theater appearance. The first black on the high court, Marshall is able to finish his talk, part of the law school's commemoration of the 100th anniversary of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. You want to talk about morality? Go to church, Justice Marshall thunders. We're here to talk about the law. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WORT news team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6 p.m. Monday through Thursday evenings. Your headline writer was David Ahrens. Special thanks to feature contributor Stu Levitan. Lauren Hicks engineered tonight's broadcast. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night.